Let's open our swords to Romans 4. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass those to the center aisle, we'd love to pick them up. And thank you for sharing your concerns with us. And for those visiting with us, we're grateful that you're here today. This morning, we continue our exposition in the book of Romans. We come to chapter 4. This is new ground for us. And I feel like studying the book of Romans is, is like holding up uh, a, a diamond, a glitter, the glittering jewel of salvation, the diamond of the gospel of God. And we are seeing many different facets of what God has done um, to redeem us through Christ. And currently, one of the great challenges um, that we face in communicating the gospel in our generation is we're, we're fighting against two trends that may or probably aren't unique to us, but, um, and that is that we tend not to value what's older. If it's old, it's not good. You need to get in something new. And here we're talking about ancient truths, truths that were uh, received and acknowledged and embraced and savored in past generations, and we believe will be true in future generations as God's word to us. So the prevailing mindset is that new is always better, and that's not always true. When that is the frame of mind, an appeal to timeless truth seems to be mission impossible. It's a message for somebody else, uh, but it's not. It's a message for you and for me and for all of us. Following Jesus' encounter with a rich young ruler, he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he's addressing this rich young ruler's love for his possessions. He walked away sorrowful when Jesus put his finger on his sin. And Jesus continued by saying, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And so my hope when the word of God is unleashed uh, before us, when it is opened and read and taught, that God would do his work in your heart and in mine. We have followed the Apostle Paul through Romans 1 through 3, where he has made the case for the universal guilt of humanity. The conclusion's grim. It's not a good report. There is none of us who is righteous, not even one of us. We're, we're not a mass of humanity who's seeking after God. Romans 3 says there's none who seek him. No, not one. We have all gone astray. We have pursued our own agendas with little time or consideration of our accountability before the God who has created us. And so in such, into such despair, the gospel comes. This jewel of God's redemption, this diamond of light that comes to us into this impossible situation, God's good news comes with a demonstration of love, the greatest demonstration of love on record. God demonstrated his love to us and that while we were yet sinners going our own way, Christ has come and he has died on the cross, a substitutionary death that we might be forgiven. The creator God sent his one and only son to redeem a rebel race. How does this amazing grace, this amazing love of God enter into our lives? It's not something, this gospel is not something to be nodded over. It's to be received. And how do we receive it? 
And the answer to that is by faith. In Romans 4, Paul takes us back to Abraham. That's old. (laughs) Takes us back. I I imagine the the Romans who received this letter while we're going back to Abraham. That's been a while ago. And for us, it's even farther back. So Paul takes us back to Abraham, who's called the father of the faithful. And Abraham is held up for us as one who is justified by faith. And that it's been true through all of time. This is not something new that's come on the scene. All all through God's word, we see that men and women are made right with God only one way, and that is by faith in him. Faith, a trust in him. When it comes to your life, when it comes to your soul, fight the urge to reject the old and align your life with what God has declared in his word from the beginning. That's a firm foundation. Jesus said as much. You hear my words, you obey them, you'll be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. If not, the opposite is true. It's all sinking sand. So let's look at the text, Romans 4. And I want to break it up into three sections. We're going to go one through eight. And I want to note first, right standing with God comes not by human goodness, not by human grit, if you want another G for the blank, not by human goodness. It says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What was gained by him? For if Abraham was justified by works, and he had some. In fact, Abraham is brought to the forefront of our minds in chapter 4 all the way through that I'm going to do an entire message, an expose of his life next week, Father Abraham. Abraham was was not justified by works. if If he was, Paul goes on to say he has something to boast about, but not about God. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. He was a giant in Scripture. Three times in Scripture, Abraham is referred to as a friend of God. (laughs) That's a pretty good attribute, wouldn't you say? Abraham, friend of God. Because of his prominence in Romans 4, again, we're going to look at him for the next few weeks, at him for the next few weeks. Paul begins with Abraham, and rightly so. He was a tremendous man. He was a courageous man. He was a lion-hearted man. He was a tender man. He was a magnanimous man. He was a faithful man. He was a humble man. He he had a lot that he could tell you. I did this and this and we experienced this and this victory came. But he was a God-besotted man in the sense that he understood his life and his calling and his purpose was based upon what God uh, had called him to do, which is true of every believer. What I would say in light of all these things, he was courageous, he was lion-hearted, I mean, after all, he took 318 men to rescue his nuisance of a nephew, Lot. 318 men conquered uh, these armies and brought back the spoil. He was courageous. But let's be clear on this one point. Turn back a page in Romans to chapter 3. Verses 10 through 20, Abraham was a sinner, magnanimous, faithful, courageous, yes, but he was a sinner. Abraham belongs among the rest of humanity 
presented in this pathetic resume of the human story in Romans 3. So what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. You get the feel in Paul's argument here that if anyone would qualify with God, it would be Abraham. Look at his life. Look at his good works. He left his father's house, his country, his kindred, and he went going not knowing where he was going. We don't like that. That sounds irresponsible, Abraham. Yeah, but God's got a call on my life, and he told me to leave and to go to the land that he would show me. Did he give you a map? Not really. He just said, pack up the writer and go. He left his father's house, and he went going not knowing. You know, have you ever left your house, your city, your, your parish, in Louisiana, your parish? Have you ever left and gone to a city, a place where nobody knew your name? I think of um, Joseph Bailey who said uh, on a business trip in a poem, I'm all alone, Lord, all alone, a thousand miles from home. There's no one here who knows my name except the clerk, and she spelled it wrong. No one to listen to my jokes, to laugh at my gripes. It's all gray slush outside. You ever been far away from home with no one there to help? Living in a hostile place? That was Abraham and many other inspiring attributes that we'll look at a little closer next week. But Paul's point is in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, maybe to you. But Paul goes on to say, and look at your Bible here, not before God. He may be able to brag in the human realm, but not before God. It will not earn him right standing with God. Several things. If Abraham could be justified by works, he would boast. We hear it all the time, don't we? Well, I came up through the school of hard knocks. And here it goes. I journeyed to the land under adverse conditions, he could have said. I gave my nephew Lot the choice land. I said, okay, we're crowded, Lot. You go ahead and you pick the, you pick the land. And so we are wired to want to work and boast, work and boast, but not before God. Your resume be at Abraham's? I doubt it. And Paul said he can't boast before God, so why would we think that we would be able to? That's humbling, good, that's right, that's right, that's right thinking about this. A couple years ago, I, I read an article by Pastor Ed Moore, who, who wrote an article entitled, 10 Flavors of Work-Based Salvation. And see if you can recognize, in, recognize any of these tendencies in your life, the work of philanthropy. I'm going to give money, I'm going to contribute, I'm going to give to the poor, I'm going to do this and do that all out of a motivation that somehow God will appreciate my efforts and recognize my giving. The work of service, this is endless. Why do you do what you do in your service to God? 
Is it to earn merit with him? Or is it to, as an expression of your love for what he's done for you? The work of comparison, the work of comprehension. I'm hearing more and more of this. When the truth of the gospel is put before someone, they'll say, I need to just figure it out. But salvation doesn't come by comprehension. Salvation comes by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You could spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out. The issue before us today is, is it true? Is it biblical? Some believe in the salvation of restitution. You've done something wrong. I stole a pencil or pack of gum, so I'm going to go do this to make it right, and then you can enlarge even larger transgressions. But that doesn't make us right with God. Salvation's not by restitution. We can't pay back enough. That's why it took the sinless Son of God, a sinless life, his substitutionary death to pay for our sins. Some, Some believe in salvation by affliction. Oh, if you've only known the hell I've lived through as if their suffering somehow is going to commend them to God, our affliction can't pay for our sins. And on and on it goes. So what do you do? Abraham, he was a, man, he was a, he was a wonderful man. But he can't boast against God or, or before God. If he can't, what do I have to offer God? That's the point. Do you feel yourself coming to the end of yourself? That's a good thing. Because we come to the next um, verse, verses three through five, what does the scripture say? Now that's a great question, isn't it? We need, to, we need to ask that about everything in our life. What does the scripture say? And don't get weird. Don't get sarcastic with it. Yeah, like scripture has something to say about brushing your teeth. Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe it's good to be, have a Um, be a good steward of uh, the temple of our body. But uh, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture in all of life. And it speaks to everything. What does the Scripture say? Look at that in verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There it is. You want to be right with God? Follow Abraham's path here in verse 3. Now, that is a good question for us to think about. What does the Word of God say? Not the theologians, not the, not the committees, not the council. Paul's authority is the Scripture. The Old Testament establishes that justification, being declared right before God, is by faith in God's grace and provision in Christ. This is the question that should come to every believer all the time. And there's a raging debate um, that I've been following in Christian circles on the authority of Scripture. And the debate is, um, does Scripture have one meaning? And I would declare that emphatically and with resolve. Uh, The text of Scripture has only one meaning. Numerous applications, but only one. Well, this is really flying in the face of many um, uh, Christians, uh, which I think is an error, that the text has many meanings. Well, that may be fine for your literature course in college where you read a work and you interpret it however you want, but that's not okay with regard to Scripture. Sometimes people say, well, um, you know, I, th- I think the Bible, or I think it's saying here, the Lord said to me, I think this text means, really what the issue is, what does it mean? What does it mean to those who heard it first? And where is the authority in it? 
And so in confession, we, we are confessional in our nature. We believe truths and hold to them. If, um, if I have some novel interpretation of the Bible that's not in line with what has been confessed by faithful believers through the generations, I probably should reject it. I'm saying that sarcastically. By all means, I must put it off. We want to be in line with what has God has established in his truth. And often there's a snarkiness that comes out of the debate to where, oh yeah, so you have the truth. If we don't agree with you, then we're not right. No, all we're contending to is to, is to come back to Scripture and let it speak. What does the Scripture say? And in this case, about the most important thing you can ever consider, and that is your salvation. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. And that's, that's, the, that's the tragedy of a works mentality. You, you may work all of your life trying to please God, only to find that at the end of, of it all, you're even more in debt. That's the wonder of the gospel, that God's righteousness and grace is credited to us by faith in the righteous one. Now, Paul is quoting here, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis 15, 6. And I think the point is this, that whether you were, were reading in the Old Testament or the New, God's way has been the same, by faith in the God who provides. I do find it interesting that a key moment in Abraham's life, actually at the end of his life, is that God would provide the ram caught in the thicket. And God would reveal himself to Abraham as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, the Lord who provides. But here, Abraham believed God. This is more than mental acknowledgement, more than assent. In James, we read that the demons believe in God and they tremble. So it's not just a scent that there's a God and agree, uh, or an awareness, an acknowledgement. This, this faith spoken of here is, is found in the, in the word believed, pistua, which is mentioned 120 times in the New Testament. To believe, to trust. And at the heart of pistuo is trust. Abraham put the full weight of his life upon God's sturdy promises, provision, and protection. Where am I going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I trust you. That's where true assurance comes. You, you struggling with assurance of your salvation? As much as I would love to give that to you, I can't. So I bring you to passages like this, and it says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What about me? What if I were to plug or insert my name there? If I believe in Christ, if I believe in God and his provisions, would his righteousness be given to, to me? What do you think the answer to that is? Absolutely. Absolutely. This kind of faith is a gift and is something that you do. Here's one of those mysteries in the Bible. It's a gift and it's something you do. It's attention will affirm them both. 
It's the action of resting, settling, resolving, trusting in the promises of Jesus Christ. Do you believe God in that way? See him through the eyes of faith. God counted it as righteousness in regard to Abraham. In the ledger of Abraham's life, God looked at it and he saw Abraham believing and trusting in him and it was reckoned to him, charged to him as righteousness. The Greek word here, here is logizomai. It's used throughout the New Testament. It's an accountant's term. It's a, a mathematical term in general. And it also has other meanings to keep a list of records to think or to consider. However, the most significant use of logizomai is related to salvation. Paul often used the term to explain how a person can be in a right relationship with God with this term. And the picture is that a lost person owes God an infinite debt. To be lost in my sins, a debt in my trespasses and sins, means that I owe God a debt I can never pay. An infinite debt. However, Christ's death on, on the sinner's behalf is the basis of the debt being canceled and being freed from it with Christ's righteousness being credited to the believer's account. Amen. Wouldn't you say? And this brings up an important term, uh, imputation, with regard to salvation. It's the attribute, um, it's to attribute something to another. When we hear the word imputation, it's to attribute something to another. It communicates it really an important aspect of the gospel right here. In reference to salvation, imputation is the legal crediting of Jesus' perfect righteousness to believers by faith. Wayne Grudem writes, justification is an instantaneous legal act whereby God declares those trusting in his son righteous in the courtroom of heaven. We see this several ways in the, in the scripture. Adam sinned, and I believe Romans 5 teaches that his guilt was imputed to us. He was the federal head of the human race. God the Father viewed it as belonging to us, and it has spread since. Oh yes, we have our own guilt. But in a headship case, Adam sinned and his guilt was imputed to us. Secondly, when Christ suffered and died for our sins, our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. God thought of it as belonging to him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5. Now, in the doctrine of justification, we see imputation a third time. Adam, our sin imputed to Christ. And on the cross... Christ, Christ, excuse me, by faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And for this, we give thanks to God for his grace. These are important doctrines. This is at the heart of the gospel. What am I really trusting in? What am I really hoping in? And when we think of doctrines like this, I think they're at the heart of healthy Christian living, certainly at the heart of true salvation. Alistair Begg's comment caught my mind this week. There's never been a time in Christianity's history 
when more how-to books have been written. Yet, how are we really doing? We seemingly know how to do everything, but we don't know who God is. And I'm just taken by the whole message of Romans, God exchanging my shame for Christ's forgiveness. There's another testimony to bear in this passage. Don't check out. It's incredible. Blessed are those whom God counts righteous, verses 6 through 8. And the testimony comes from none other than David, King David. He was a great king. He reigned in Israel for 40 years. His son Solomon took the collective gains of his reign to new heights. When the Jews look back on their history, they they saw David and Solomon as the golden age of Israel's history. And it says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous. So David, another perspective here. You're blessed if you're counted righteous by God, but it's not according to works. Abraham had a solid testimony. There's some blemishes. He was a sinner. David had a gaping hole in his, in his uh, bio. Um, and in Psalm 32, he, which is what is quoted here and what we heard sung just a moment ago so beautifully, is David's giving his testimony Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. And of course, this is out of the backdrop of Bathsheba, Uriah being murdered, and all of that fallout which is chronicled in Scripture in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So what we... What we see in this blessing is that David really, really believes that we're held accountable for our sins. And we're blessed when we're forgiven and those sins are covered. R.C. Sproul once um, said that most people believe not in justification by faith, but justification by death. I died, therefore I need to be in your heaven, O God. Sproul tried out the initial question of the evangelism explosion training material on his son one day. And he went on to say, if you were to appear before God and he were to ask you, son, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you think you'd say to him? And his son replied, I'd say, well, I'm dead, aren't I? Wrong answer, Junior. The point seemed to be that all he needed to do to gain entrance into God's presence was die. Is that a biblical thought? Not with regard to eternal life. The righteousness of Christ received by faith did not seem to even enter into his young mind in the slightest. And this is why we need the book of Romans. This is why we need to come back to the gospel and its emphasis on the justification by faith. So back to David's testimony. 
David's testimony communicates that we are accountable for our sins. He felt the weight of that. My, he talked in Psalm 32 of having a fever and his bones wasting away. It's a horrible, horrible picture. He's dealing with the guilt of adultery. He's dealing with the, the pain and the misery of having put together one of his mighty men, Uriah. And he had dismissed it for a span of nine months until Nathan is dispatched. And Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him with a parable. Not a fire and brimstoner, although I'm sure he could have done that. He tells this heart-rending story of injustice. And David becomes enraged and demanded that the perpetrator be killed. And Nathan took his finger and he said, you're that man. You've taken Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. John Piper, in an interesting podcast on um, was Bathsheba complicit in this? Was David guilty of rape? That's a fair question. And Piper argues, I think persuasively, that David didn't invite her. He didn't woo her. He didn't lure her. He didn't trick her. He took her. He took her. And even more compelling is the story that Nathan tells about this man who had one little ewe lamb that was consumed by his master. The language that he uses in that parable communicates a devastation. Taken, killed, eaten, consumed. So how do you like that? For the prime author of the Psalms. He would be, have been canceled a thousand times over in the climate we're in now. And rightly so. It was wicked and evil. And Nathan came to him and David broke. And Nathan says, God's forgiven you. You're not going to die. But there will be a sword in your house. There will be consequences. And there were. His daughter was raped. Absalom usurped his throne and won the hearts of Israel. And, and David in his old age is running in the woods trying to find refuge. And so out of the backwash of that is verses 6 through 8. Where he says, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Let me just ask this morning. Do you have a Bathsheba moment in your life that has brought shame to you? The word picture that comes to my mind is that this so grips your, your heart and your life and the way you view things. It's like Satan's got a big boot on your throat. And it consumes your joy. It withers your heart. It keeps you from giving freely to others in love. You got a Bathsheba moment? Male or female? That has brought shame to you? Would you listen to the one who's giving this testimony on the pages of Scripture? That in Jesus Christ there's no condemnation. 
Yes, that we have to bear consequences for our sins and our decisions. But that doesn't mean that we have to live our life with Satan's boot on our throat, robbing our joy of who we are in Jesus Christ. Would you be free this morning? Would you come to receive this grace found in Jesus Christ? I remember early in my ministry, maybe first two years I was here, right, right there on the pew that I sit on. It was an evening worship service and there was an older man and you could tell by his face it was weathered and worn and he sat as I preached and wept the entire service. It wasn't noisy. It was uncontrollable weeping and the tears and I just wondered what was going on. And he slipped out of the room before, you know, you can't tackle people when they're running to the door. That doesn't look real pastoral, but I tried. And, um, and I found out that he had just killed a family because he was intoxicated. That kind of weight. I've committed adultery. I've betrayed. I've killed a I've killed one of my choice men. That shame is brought into the power of Scripture for you to hear his testimony this morning. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Covered. Buried in the depths of the sea, never to be remembered against you again. If any man is in Christ, if any woman is is in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new by faith in him alone. I think that's good news. Don't you? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Are you dressed in that righteousness Let me close with this. Turn the page or two to chapter two, verse four. I want you to see that we're sinners in the hands of a patient God. Sinners in the hands of a kind and patient God. And I'll close with this. Do not presume on the riches and his kindness. Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. That's speaking of God. He's rich in kindness and patience and forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, which is what you're seeing in David's statement here in Psalm 32 and Romans chapter 4. He has spoken to us through his son. Would you hear his voice? Would you receive today by faith, putting the full weight of your life in in the promises of Jesus Christ? That's where we need to go. Let's go there now. Dear Lord, as we come to the end of this service and as we're looking at this classic text that you've preserved in this word as a timeless statement that the only way to be made right with you is by believing, trusting, relying fully on your provision for salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. 
And so I pray that you would bring us to the end of ourselves today. This text humbles us. And I pray that we would bring all of our sin and things that trouble our heart under the canopy of your grace. I pray that there would be freedom today. You would set free today. Bondages would be set free today. And that there's no condemnation in you. So lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.